Saturday night. I wanted to talk tonight about the great question about investigation and about doubt. In order to sustain the amount of effort and energy required for the spiritual quest, there has to be a very powerful individual motivator. And in Zen practice, this is sometimes referred to as the great question or the great matter of life and death. And this is a kind of inquiry that's very personal to us, that's very much at the heart of the matter as far as we're concerned. I talked last uh, week about the Buddha's own discovery of old age sickness and death and how it affected him and how after these things completely became real for him, his mind was totally changed. It could no longer rest in the kind of comfort and day-to-day routine, the set of everyday assumptions that he had grown up in. His mind, as the reading said, completely lost the vanity of youth, of health. And he realized that something was going on, something was going on that was in the background for most people, but for him became the question at the foreground, the whole context of his life from that point forward. This great question is something that many people who come to spiritual practice have known for themselves. And you might be able to, in your own mind, think about what it actually was that caused the quest, that triggered the whole search, that moved you in the direction of wanting to know and wanting to understand. I think for myself, I can remember being, oh, maybe early teens, And I had the experience of uh, one member of my extended family that I was close to and that we sometimes lived with uh, get sick with uh, throat cancer and kind of go through, you know, a period of very painful decline and then die. And then, you know, shortly after that happened, You know, the war in Vietnam was uh, picking up steam and uh, my father was in the military. And so that had all kinds of implications about, you know, what was happening, 
Where would he go? What would he do? Would he be all right? And then another member of my extended family got sick and passed away. And when I was a junior in high school, my father uh, did indeed go to Vietnam. And by this point, I had many reservations about the rightness of that. And then another member of my extended family died. And by this point, I was like, what's going on here? I mean, what is this? What, what is the nature of this world that we live in, that people that you love die, and there are wars, and people that you love might die, or they might kill. And then the question, am I the only one that's noticing this? Is it just me? <laughs> you know? We don't necessarily see the depth of these questions reflected back to us in the larger culture, because we're, the larger culture is so bound up in seeking what is pleasant to kind of paper over the, the quicksand that seems to be everywhere when these aspects of life become vivid to us. So when I look for myself, you know, the roots of my search, the roots of my inquiry were really during that period of my life. And from that point on, I had to know I had to look. If there was an answer, I would find it. And if there was no answer, I would have to find the courage to live with the knowledge of these realities and use my life in a constructive way to assert at least what I could assert in the face of this kind of difficulty and suffering, which seemed to so pervade the world. So this is the great question. And the great question, for those who have it, is very energizing, it's very motivating. Because the fire is so hot that it's unbearable to think about just sitting in it and staying there. So you have a great question of your own, all of you, whether you've ever thought of it that way or not, and a kind of inner drive that propels your search. And of course, Buddhism endorses the great question, the holding of the great question, the penetration of the great question. And I talked last Saturday about the Four Noble Truths. But Buddhism leaves aside many other questions as not being directly pertinent. It doesn't seek to answer all questions. The Buddha uh, once was walking in a forest with a group of his monks, and as they were walking along, he said to them, um, 
he reached down and picked up a, a handful of leaves and he said to them, how many uh, leaves are there in the, the forest, bhikkhus? Are there uh, more leaves in the forest than there are in my hand or less? And they said, oh, oh, more, Lord. And he said, exactly so. What I have in my hand represents what you need to know, what you need to learn to find liberation. The rest of the forest reflects what I know but will not speak because it does not pertain. So Buddhism endorses the question, the great question, and the search for an answer to this, but it doesn't seek to answer everything. As we saw in the, dis the conversation about the Four Noble Truths last week, this great question in the Buddhist system is answered through individual understanding, gained through direct knowledge. Direct knowledge. Your individual direct knowledge. So another way of putting this is that the answer answers to this arise within our own mind stream, our individual mind streams, as a result of our own skillful and persistent search for truth. So related to the great question and the answering of the great question is what you might call the offspring of the great question, uh, investigation. And investigation is the second factor of enlightenment. And it's meant to be keen investigation of the Dharma. So if you remember the se seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness is first, then investigation, and then energy. So if we were going to define investigation, we'd say it's something like, uh, that which is actively curious, noticing, noting capacity of mind, which focuses on experiential reality. It wants to know the Dharma directly, to see it working and manifesting in what is observable. So that's what we mean when we're talking about investigation. And, you know, focus to this end, investigation is a sharp tool for really coming to liberating understanding. And its field of exploration is very broad because it is utilized or used or present across the four foundations of mindfulness. And contained within the four foundations of mindfulness is every human experience that you could ever have. So in other words, it pertains to everything that could be part of uh, your life and experience. Investigation has at least the potential to be there and be part of how you know and hold that experience. So it's oriented towards this whole question of suffering and the end of suffering, which is the Buddha's question. 
So investigation is really key and understanding can't arise without it. And many questions are answered by this factor alone, by your uh, direct knowing and seeing. Now having discussed the great question and talked a little bit about investigation, let's turn to uh, something that you might think is directly related when it comes up in your practice, but which really is kind of a faux version of this uh, lineage of inquiry. So we could say this is uh, the not-so-great question, better known as skeptical doubt. So skeptical doubt is different from just asking questions or wanting to know about a particular topic. You know, as, we, as I just said, wanting to know, wanting to understand, that's the essence of the practice in many ways. But skeptical doubt is a hindrance. And what's a hindrance? Well, it's the kind of experience which, if not held mindfully, actually causes uh, a weakening of concentration and if uh, allowed to run along unhindered, can actually uh, get in the middle of your meditative uh, process and really send it into a spiral. So uh, all of the hindrances basically are hindrances to the mind becoming concentrated, meaning one-pointed and uh, steadily present to what's being observed. So, you know, if your mind's not there and connected in a continuous kind of way with what you are directly knowing, you're not going to be able to come to uh, very clear observation that allows uh, realization to emerge. So what is doubt and how can it be recognized? Uh, Here's a simile that the Buddha used. If there's a pot of water which is turbid, stirred up and muddy, and this pot is put into a dark place, then a man with a normal faculty of sight could not properly recognize and see the image of his own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by doubt, overpowered by doubt, then one cannot properly see the escape from doubt which has arisen. Then one does not properly understand one's own welfare, nor that of another, nor that of both. And also texts memorized a long time ago do not come into one's mind, not to speak of those not memorized. (laughs) So, you know, when I read this, I think, oh, it sounds like, you know, you just kind of lose it. You know, you forget what's going on. It's like, Oh, the meditation instructions, it's like they seem like they're not accessible to you. Like, what was that? And I was supposed to do with what? And then, so doubt in action. This is, this is what it looks like to help you identify it. Like the rest of the hindrances, so that would be sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, Doubt, 
arises when there's a lapse in mindfulness or when mindfulness is weak. So it's kind of like, you know, the gates open and, you know, the goat escapes from the pen. So where I've noticed this tends to happen is when we have an experience in meditation and something that is experienced isn't the way we think it should be, right? And this often is not even fully conscious to us. But we're there, we're connecting, we're connecting. And then there's an expectation of what should be known next or how it should feel or how it should be. And it doesn't go like that, right? And then there's kind of like a disconnection from it. Mindfulness weakens. There's been a confounding of our assumptions and then doubt uh, comes in. That's how I've often seen it anyway. So mindfulness weakens and then there's loss of direct contact with the mind stream, right? The observing ability kind of goes. And this is very characteristic. So when doubt is present, mindfulness is always weak or absent. And there's a lack of direct connection with experience or clarity. This is when doubt is present as a hindrance. Right? I'll talk later about doubt being present and mindfully known. So there's very often uh, a kind of inner dialogue which can be repetitive or which kind of links on and on to one thing after another. And often this is asking questions in kind of a confused or repetitive manner. Uh, circling them again and again with nothing new being added to the situation. So, you know, this repetitive kind of cycling or questioning usually involves a kind of thinking that goes around and around, but it doesn't have an answer available to it. So this spinning, while the spinning is going on, the door opens to the other hindrances and they often come flooding in. In fact, I, I would say, at least from my, my own observation of doubt and my, my practice, it rarely comes alone. It very often brings friends. Sometimes it brings all of them. But restlessness uh, and worry is almost always seems to be uh, part of it, for sure. So you could have agitation and worry and restlessness and wanting and fear and desire circling through the mind stream. Uh, as part of this uh, as well. And, you know, the thing about doubt is that it exists in its own kind of self-contained, nervous reality, and it's disconnected from the stream of experience. And uh, it has a large element of speculation in it, uh, and it doesn't know itself. Right? So, it runs on a self-contained kind of loop. So one image that came up for me when I was preparing this talk was of a balloon. And you know, you may have had the experience of, you know, like uh, getting ready for a party or something and you're, you know, blowing up a balloon and you're getting ready to, you know, tie it off at the end and it like escapes from you and it kind of goes 
all, all around the room, right, and, until it like completely exhausts itself and falls to the ground, uh, devoid of buoyancy and uh, energy, right? And doubt can kind of be like that. It can kind of do that to your practice, you know? It puts a lot of in it, and then it collapses. So it can take up a lot of different topics for its confused attention. Doubt can. And, you know, just to make this a little three-dimensional for you, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about some of these. So there can be doubts about the self and self-capacity. All right, and so I'm going to read you some examples of this. Just to reassure you, none of these came directly from any one of you, right? They're kind of like composites of things that have been heard or that have gone through my mind at one time or another. So doubts about self-capacities. Um, it's too late in life to be doing this. I should have started earlier. But how could I? No, it's okay. Calm, calm. Like hell, calm. My back hurts, my knees hurts, and I don't know what those questions mean in the morning. I'll never get it. But maybe they're wrong. Is it stupid? I paid all that money to get here. I wonder what the teachers think about my practice. No, they would say so. Maybe they just want to be nice. No, I'm not sure. Uh, should I pay attention, or is it self-hatred? Okay? Doubt. <laughs> Doubt. Okay, here's another one. I'm too young to be here. <laughs> Everybody else has been doing this for 20 years at least. They're all so old. <laughs> I need to be with people my age. Teachers could be my grandparents. <laughs> they have no idea what my life is like out of it, truly. I should have gone to Burning Man. <laughs> At least you can have sex there. And drugs, too. Maybe I should leave? But would I be a quitter? Is that bad? Or would that be wise? Or maybe I could uh, do yoga all day and take walks. <laughs> that, that could be wise effort. I'm not sure. But what I have to say that in an interview, is that wise speech? Would it be wrong to take care of myself to end my suffering? Okay. Doubt. <laughs> okay. And then we get the, compare, the comparing mind. Everyone here is so quiet. They're so peaceful and tranquil. So far ahead of me. My mind is a mess. I can't stand the breath. All I do is think, 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 think. <laughs> if, I, if I were better, I would be quiet. But maybe they're asleep. Is that a hindrance? Maybe people are too tired because of the schedule. If I slept in, I might have more energy. Is there a rule? 
but what if I go home and I'm still a mess? No, it will still be okay. Right, right, right. It's doing me good. Uh, or is it making me worse? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, that would be insight, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, do any of these sound? Okay, then another frequent area is doubt about teachings. Right, doubt about teachings. Whether they're right, whether they're complete, various points of Abhidharma. How can they know what the Buddha really taught? It was so long ago. He didn't know anything about science. How about that past life stuff? Do you need to believe it all? Those stories all seem far-fetched. I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> if Buddhism is so good, how come Burma is such a basket case? Didn't this practice come from Burma? Or is it Thai? Does Joseph speak Burmese? How, how do we know he got the right instructions? <laughs> it might be better to get a monk from Sri Lanka. But is that the same thing? Okay. Uh, all this encouragement to effort, uh, how does that fit with letting go? Isn't that just no effort? And who's getting liberated if there's no self? Or maybe it's the same self as the Hindus mean. Is that non-dualism? Maybe it's like the Tibetans, but they came later. Or were they before the Zen people? <laughs> Do the Zen people have a self? Maybe that would be better. But is that non-dual? Okay. All right. Doubt about teachers. I don't think any of them have children. <laughs> are they married? Well, Sally and Guy are, I think. But don't you need somebody with your own experiences to understand? But maybe that's the relative level. Is that part of this? Or, or is that different? The Buddha left his family. Is that what we should do to be enlightened? I don't want to leave my family. Maybe this isn't good for me. Are they just teaching aversion to life? Joy is part of it, I think. But all I hear about is suffering. Shouldn't this be more fun? Where's the happy parts? Or is that wrong to want to be happy? Okay. So, you know, the, there's another... Uh, image of skeptical doubt that's in the, the text. And it's the feeling of a person stumbling through a desert and arriving at an unmarked crossroad. <clears throat> desert, right? Flat, no features, kind of no Google maps. She, he wonders which way to go. There's no way to tell, so the person just stands there vacillating. Right? So that's the experience of, of skeptical doubt, very often with these other hindrances coming up in association with it, right? You kind of don't know where to grab hold. It's just kind of swirling and, uh, you know, the uncertainty uh, demotivates effort. 
and then, then the confidence and energy really drop. And that, of course, is the opposite of the great question, which, as I said earlier, is very highly motivational. So that brings us to the question of how to work with doubt when it comes up. And I'll reiterate at this point what I did say earlier. You know, not all questions are skeptical doubt. Sometimes they're just questions, right? You can know skeptical doubt by how it functions when it arises in your mind stream and you don't see it. And it functions as a hindrance. So if you wanted to grow skeptical doubt, the Buddha says, you would give it unwise attention. He says, there are things causing doubt, frequently giving unwise attention to them. That is the nourishment for the arising of doubt that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of doubt that has already arisen. So what's the unwise attention piece of this? It's basically being lost in or identified with the content of the doubt. So we could say that doubt is delusion operating under uh, the vague appearance of inquiry or investigation, but it's not investigation. So when it becomes the primary experience and it's not known mindfully, it can be destabilizing to the whole process of what uh, you're trying to do. And if it's not seen, you have the uh, what I call the fallout of meditation experience. So have you had that experience in the course of the retreat? Probably a lot of people have. Most people, maybe all, have had it. You're going along. You're doing the meditation. You know, you kind of got your object. Or maybe it's slippery. Maybe it goes away. Maybe it... But, you know, you're in there. You're trying. You get it. Maybe it, you know, the mindfulness lapses. But you're engaged in the process. You're, you're meditating or you're attempting to meditate. And then something happens, something like skeptical doubt, and it's not, not seen. It arise, arises as a strong hindrance. And you have this feeling that your meditation is gone, right? Like you were meditating and now you're not anymore. It's kind of like you've fallen out of the whole thing. And like uh, somebody who's been thrown off a horse is no longer uh, even in the saddle holding on to the horn, right? You're like off it and looking around trying to figure out, you know, <laughs> where it is and how you can get back on it. That's what I call falling out of meditation. And it's easy to do with skeptical skeptical doubt because it kind of cuts at the underpinnings of uh, trust and confidence uh, and faith that you have to uh, have some connection with in order to even be willing to try to do what must be done. So the answer to working with this, and this is probably uh, something that's become a bit of, of a refrain for you, at this point, is to see it clearly in a non-identified way as just another meditation object. To become aware of the mental state of wavering as a mental 
object. And it very often has physical correlates too. So here's a key uh, point here, which is the remedy for doubt is investigation of the state of doubt, not enmeshment in its content. Right? So skeptical doubt, you do not want to relate to it on its own terms, right? You cannot have a dialogue with skeptical doubt, right? It's just blabbling at you, right? The conversation doesn't go anyplace. It just feeds it. Okay, because this doubt has this particular kind of tone, which is a kind of wavering to it. And it's a little bit like, uh, you know, gunning the motor but spinning the wheels. And it keeps us ricocheting off the field of connection with direct experience, which is really uh, what keeps us grounded. And it's the place from which understanding arises. So the difference between doubt and investigation is that investigation rests upon direct experience and takes that as the source of emerging insight, right? Direct experience, not speculative thought. So let's just briefly consider the framework of the Four Noble Truths for perspective on how to work with doubt and why it makes <clears throat> no sense to follow skeptical doubt. I mean, you can, but, you know. Okay. So we said that, you know, the first truth, of course, is that, you know, there is the truth of suffering. Right? Second noble truth is there is a cause of suffering, and it's craving born from ignorance. Right? So it's craving, the mind wanting, uh, thirsting. But that has a root. The root is in ignorance, in the unknowing. And so the question always comes, comes up or when uh, people are really uh, thinking upon this. Well, if you know, the root of craving is ignorance, then why don't we just like, get rid of ignorance? And the answer to that is we're working on it. <laughs> but Inherent in the nature of ignorance is you don't know what you don't know, right? It's kind of like trying to look at the back of your head, right? It just doesn't work. So, you know, just uh, ignorance can't generally be resolved by thinking alone, especially agitated thinking. So ignorance is a lack of knowledge and understanding and thinking alone, which doesn't supply anything new to clarify the basic confusion from which this kind of thinking proceeds, is not going to do the job. And that's why I said, you know, you don't want to deal with skeptical doubt in its own terms. So investigation is key in working with doubt, but it needs to be wise. And that means a direct knowing and experience staying with what can be directly known and not with speculative thought. You know, the kind of speculative thoughts that I uh, gave you examples of. So in this case, the direct experience is 
the actual knowing of doubt, the experience of doubt. Doubt is like this, right? We're in the, the same basic framework that we use to be mindfully aware of every other kind of experience, right? Uh, tranquility is like this. Uh, sensation is like this. Pain is like this. Uh, happiness is like this. Despair is like this. Uh, ease is like this. Well, doubt is like this. So how do you how do you do it? You know, basically the same way that uh, same basic methodology that you you would use with any of the others. So. You relax, if you can, invite the body to relaxation, because there's often some agitation going on with this uh, particular state. You uh, summon or uh, invite mindfulness, and then you turn it towards the experience of doubt itself. What is this experience of the wavering mind? What can be known known of it? Uh, well, there's thoughts. You almost always will notice thoughts and lots of them. So you want to know th- the thinking is happening, but don't follow the content. But if there's emotion with it, you definitely want to know that. You want to, and as I said, you know, it's often bound up in, uh, with some of the other hindrances. So, you know, those are there to be known as well, uh, known and named as well as uh, the feeling of those in the body. So there's um, note identification with the whole mushroom cloud. And, you know, notice the strengthening, weakening of of the system. Notice if it's getting stronger, is it coming in waves? Um, is it weakening? Is it coming and going? You know, get in as close as you can to it and just know it. So whenever um, a hindrance arises or we lose uh, awareness or the right uh, mindful connection with what is to be known, the general rule, the first general rule, is always you do what's necessary to restore mindfulness. That's, that's the strategy in a nutshell. Then how you do it working with particular uh, combinations of things is kind of the technique. So that's how, that's how you would work with doubt. So just to, to wrap it up here, um, inquiry and direct observation is of great value uh, in the whole Buddhist process of coming to understanding. There's the great question, there's investigation, and there's the uh, bad imitator of skeptical doubt. So it's good to be able to discern uh, among these and relate to them appropriately. Uh, One is the source of your empowerment, the great question. Investigation is the source 
of many of the answers you are seeking. Skeptical doubt is the deluded mind uh, doing its thing. And don't get them mixed up. So know the doubt, but stick to the investigation, because it's with the investigation that you will come to the resolution of the great question, which is driving your search. So with that, may you have the wisdom of discernment and the courage to follow the depth of your question to the shore of understanding and release of all suffering. May all your aspirations be completely fulfilled and may you know emancipation from all sorrow.